The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. All right, well, we're rewarding those who are prompt, so we're going we're gonna to start. Um, I should say, if you don't know Richard Bush, I don't know where you've been for the last 30 years. He is Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, Director of its Center for Northeast Asian Policy Studies, and holder of the Chen Fu and Cecilia Yen Ku Chair in Taiwan Studies, and really one of the most knowledgeable people around on, on Taiwan, on Hong Kong, and on China. Somebody whose advice I have relied on for many, many, many years. So it's a pleasure to have him here. And I've also had the pleasure of reading Hong Kong in the Shadow of China, which is really, for those interested in, in Hong Kong, uh, an objective, unbiased discussion of its history, what's been going on recently, and then with uh, kind of a look to the future and what the United States should be doing and what it means for Taiwan. So it's really, it's a terrific book. We have it out front and we have the author here to autograph it if you want it later. Um, but it's, it's just great to have you here. Thank Thanks. you for coming up. Mm -hmm. um, we won't start off with a question about tweets, so okay. um, uh, we'll just <laughs> allow you to you want to talk for about how long? 20, 25 minutes. 20, 25 minutes, and then I'll ask some questions, okay. and then all audience will ask some questions. But thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It's a great pleasure. Um, and um, Nice to see old friends, uh, some of whom have Hong Kong in their past, among them you, right? Um, and Hong Kong is, um, having Hong Kong in your past is one of the reasons that I did this book, because I um, spent uh, my secondary school years, uh, five of them uh, in Hong Kong as a missionary kid. I'm sort of in the second generation of missionary kids who went into the China field. Um, some of the founders of this organization were in the first generation. Um, and it was because I lived in Hong Kong that I did go into the China field. So uh, I owe Hong Kong a lot, because I've had a good time. Um, also, I, I knew uh, around 2013, uh, when I was looking for another project, uh, that um, things were going to be interesting in Hong Kong, because uh, electoral reform was going to be on the agenda. and. Uh, it would be um, more interesting than it had been for about 10 years. Um, I didn't know exactly how interesting it was going to be. Um, and uh, I had the uh, privilege of watching uh, events unfold and trying to make sense of them. Uh, the hardest uh, thing about doing this book was to know when to cut it off, uh, because the story kept changing. And fortunately, I cut it off uh, um, when the story was was starting to change. So I, I didn't miss uh, an important set of developments, which have only proliferated, and I'll get to that. So the key word of tonight's presentation is hybrid. Um, I own a hybrid car, but that is immaterial. Uh, Hong Kong is a hybrid in many ways, socially, economically, constitutionally. It's a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China in terms of its sort of international identity. Um, but it's um, uh, the political system and its hybrid character that I'm interested in. 
Uh, Hong Kong is neither an authoritarian system like that uh, across the border in the rest of the PRC, but it's not a full liberal electoral democracy. And, uh, two more key words are liberal and electoral. Now, Russia is one kind of hybrid. Uh, it has elections, um, and uh, Vladimir Putin gets elected, uh, but it doesn't have uh, the political freedoms and the rule of law that we associate uh, with a fully democratic system. Um, Hong Kong is different. Uh, it's, it's the opposite. Uh, it has the rule of law. It protects uh, civil and political rights. Uh, all of this is uh, embedded in the basic law. Um, uh, these were things that uh, China granted to Hong Kong or preserved in Hong Kong. Uh, and it's what we mean by the word liberal. Uh, the story of why um, uh, China was willing to uh, accommodate uh, to um, this kind of system, uh, to a liberal order, was that the British, uh, during the negotiations over the Joint Declaration um, in 1983, 1984, convinced them that um, um, the rule of law and civil and political rights were essential to the preservation of a capitalist system. That you know they they weren't something that was good for their own sake, but if, if China was serious about preserving capitalism as the second system in Hong Kong, you had to have these. And um, uh, so um, China went along. In addition, Hong Kong has a partial electoral <coughs> democracy. Half of the members of the Legislative Council, or LegCo, are, are elected in very competitive uh, um, uh, elections that we would recognize as uh, democratic. Um, and, um, but uh, the other part um, are not so democratic. Um, and here, um, half of these seats in the LegCo are um, pick through what's called functional constituencies. These are reserved for um, um, economic and social and political interests. Uh, they are um, elected by a small number of electors relative to um, the fully competitive ones. Um, and um, th this is one of the ways that uh, Beijing maintains control. Um, with respect to the election of the chief executive, uh, it's similar. Uh, this has been done through an election committee of 1,200 people. Again, people in the economic elite, people who are in various ways um, pro-Beijing. Um, and uh, the result has been that um, the people who have been chief executive are uh, people that uh, uh, China can trust um, it, uh, it seems to me that um, um, China really didn't want uh, to give an opportunity to somebody like Martin Lee, a, a sort of longtime leader of the Democratic camp, to become chief executive. It didn't want to create circumstances where the pan-democratic forces could win control of the legislature. Um, 
China may have hoped when it agreed to this back in the 1980s which, that Hong Kong would remain just an economic city, which is what it was when I lived there. Um, it did not. Um, and uh, in fact, it became a very political city. Hong Kong people used the political rights that Beijing had granted uh, to challenge the government on all sorts of issues and to push for democratic change. Um, uh, Tiananmen was one of the reasons that Hong Kong became political. Uh, growing inequality, um, both economic and political, was another. Um, there was frustration at the slow uh, rate pace of democratization. Uh, some pan-democrats got fed up of, uh, with working in uh, the system as it existed, and uh, they moved to uh, more and more radical tactics. Uh, and this division within the democratic camp between moderates and radicals became a critical factor. Uh, later on. So you have the Hong Kong hybrid, uh, you have the liberal e elements of a democratic system, rule of law, political rights, you have partial e electoral democracy, and what uh, happened uh, from 2013 to 2015, and which I describe in probably too much detail in my book, was an effort to change this hybrid and move it in a more democratic direction. Uh, specifically, uh, the, uh, the idea was to change the way the chief executive was elected so that it wasn't going to be done by 1,200 hand-picked uh, people in the election committee, but by all eligible voters in Hong Kong. Um, and this is something that, that Beijing pledged to do back in uh, 2007. Um, but there was a catch, um, and it went back to the basic law, and that was that the candidates who ran in that election uh, would be picked by a nominating committee. And the more uh, Democrats in Hong Kong learned about this nominating committee, the more concerned they became, because it looked in its membership an awful lot like the election committee, which they had had to put up with for um, uh, more than a decade. Uh, and so, um, you know, they were hoping for a system that uh, would allow them to get one of their own elected, and this uh, seemed uh, to be a way to make that impossible. So they mounted a campaign to get Beijing to drop the nominating committee. Um, and that um, struggle played out over more than a year. Um, I think that in the course of this, uh, Beijing's tactics weren't perfect. Um, at certain points, they empowered the radicals in the pan-democratic camp and marginalized moderates. Uh, Beijing missed opportunities uh, for compromise that would have allowed the package to go forward. Um, the radicals' main way of gaining leverage over Beijing was to threaten uh, civil disobedience, and the, the original uh, approach here was something called Occupy Central, um, which was developed by a couple of professors uh, at Hong Kong University and Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, it was based on um, the ideas of some Connecticut political scientists, so it's, it's really our fault. Um, uh, you'll recall that um, uh, protests began in September 2014. Um, 
over the electoral system. And this wasn't Occupy Central as it had been planned. Uh, young people from universities and high schools uh, preempted their elders and engaged in their own kind of civil disobedience. They occupied three major uh, thoroughfares in Hong Kong, um, creating great complications for people in terms of getting from here to there, especially if you had to go by car instead of subway. Uh, at the outset, there was tear gas and pepper spray. Uh, protesters uh, believed that umbrellas were a defense against tear gas, and so hence the name of the movement, uh, Umbrella Movement, hence the picture of the yellow umbrella on the cover of my book. Um, once the occupation began, the, author the authorities uh, were prepared to tolerate it. Uh, in the end, uh, the occupation ended through judicial means. This was Hong Kong's legal system uh, at work. Um, the leaders of the protest movement, I think, were divided on strategy and tactics. They didn't know what to settle for. They didn't have an exit strategy. Um, I sympathize with uh, the authorities having to deal with them. But the end result was a standoff between Beijing and the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong establishment on the one hand, uh, young people, middle class people, and the Democratic parties on the other. Now for me, through all of this, what was important was, would the end, end result of this reform process, whether you had a nominating committee or not, would it allow a competitive contest among individuals who represented the broad spectrum of political opinion in Hong Kong. And in that light, something really interesting happened in April 2015. And that was the point that the Hong Kong government actually sent its proposal for the details of this system with the nominating committee to LegCo. Um, and I believe, and um, people who's in Hong Kong, whose judgment I respect, believed that this created a narrow pathway for um, a Democrat not only to be nominated to run, but actually to win. Um, and this was a narrow pathway. The Democrats would have had to be very strategic about it. They couldn't nominate a radical person and ex expect to have that person nominated. But if they nominated uh, somebody who was moderate and whom Beijing had confidence in, um, then it would have been a competitive election. And um, Hong Kong's a small place. You know, people knew uh, that such people existed, such moderates existed, um, and uh, that um, um, perhaps uh, this could work out uh, for the best. Uh, the way that this narrow pathway was created was that the proposal allowed consideration of pre-candidates. Um, and it wasn't as hard to get uh, picked as a pre-candidate as it was to be a full-fledged candidate. The process would be transparent. Uh, the public would know the policy views of each pre-candidate. And public opinion polls would show their relatively po relative popularity. Um, you know, under this plan, the pro-Beijing members of the nominating committee um, would have had the votes to screen out any Democratic pre-candidate they didn't like. Um, but you know, if the Democrats were strategic, put up the right kind of person, it would have become politically very difficult for that person to be rejected. Beijing understood the implications of this proposal, that at the end of the day, it could have to 
would have to deal, could have to deal with a uh, Democratic uh, chief executive. Um, the compromise, I think, came too late. Um, by the spring of 2015, um, the mistrust between the Democratic camp on the one hand and Beijing and the establishment on the other was too deep. People weren't reading the details of the plan. They were just uh, obsessed with uh, um, how much they uh, feared and, and um, didn't trust the other side. Um, so the, the other thing that was going on was the mistrust within the Democratic camp. That I think radicals intimidated moderates um, uh, into casting no votes. So tragically, um, the proposal was voted down. So since then, the issue, unfortunately, has not been how do you get back to um, political electoral reform and expanding the arena of electoral competition. The question has been whether Beijing would seek to restrict uh, the civil and political rights and the rule of law that were granted uh, to Hong Kong in the basic law. Would it seek to change the Hong Kong hybrid in a negative way? And the answer here, I fear, is yes. Um, at first, it seemed that you know, Beijing would settle some scores and nibble away at press and academic freedom. But then more ominous things began to happen. Um, uh, alarming for me was the arrest uh, at the end of last year of a minor bookseller, Li Bo. Um, he happened to be connected to a publishing company that wrote salacious and provocative books about Chinese leaders. Um, but somebody picked him up off the streets of Hong Kong and took him across the border uh, uh, into Guangdong, um, who actually detained him and uh, is a mystery. Uh, but the action was arguably uh, a violation of three provisions of the uh, basic law concerning uh, due process of law. Uh, now, I actually believe that the central government didn't authorize this action. Uh, somebody decided that it was a good thing to do. Um, uh, and uh, the central government has since signaled that it shouldn't have happened and it won't happen again. But unfortunately, the situation's gotten worse. And this is over the uh, issue. When did the central government signal that this shouldn't happen again? Uh, when, when did we have March, I think, March of this year. Um, Wang Junmin, the, uh, he was dean of the law school at Tsinghua University, but he's now the key legal guy in the Hong Kong, uh, or the central government liaison office. He um, did a talk at the Foreign Correspondents Club, and he's quoted in the New York Times as saying, this shouldn't have happened, it won't happen again. And that's official enough? Yes, that's, uh, you know, he's a key guy. And uh, that was how many months after it occurred? Three, three or four. Um, but then you had the issue of Hong Kong independence. And um, um, for some young people, um, they have come to the conclusion that they're so unhappy with one country, two systems, they so see so little potential uh, for themselves under one country, two systems, that uh, the only answer is an independent Hong Kong. Um, I think they're nuts. 
there's no chance this is going to happen. Uh, even uh, a Democratic hero, quote unquote, like Chris Patton, says they're nuts. Uh, and they should just uh, do their best to reform one country, two systems in a good direction. I think Beijing should have just ignored these people. Um, maybe they would have gone away, um, but that was not to be. Uh, the first step um, occurred in September in the run-up to the, actually August, in the run-up to the Legislative Council elections in September. And um, all of a sudden candidates were given a new form that they had to sign that uh, where they pledged that Hong Kong was in, an, in, an inalienable part of China. And this was designed to put radical Democrats on the spot and, uh, or, and this new group who were known by the name of localists. And some signed and were disqualified, others did grudgingly. Uh, I'm not sure this was necessary. They were signed and they signed and were disqualified? No, they, they didn't sign. So they, they refused they, to they, sign. They refused they to sign right. and they were yes. disqualified. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think one signed and somebody decided that he wasn't sincere in, not sign, in signing and so he was disqualified anyway. Um, you know, this, a lot of discretion was left to local uh, election officials. Um, you know, if you run for the legislative, legislative council, you have to <laughs> pledge to abide by the basic law, which already says that Hong Kong has been a part of China since ancient times. So you just are making explicit what's implicit. Um, so we've seen recently the second stage of this um, campaign against localism, and that was... Um, when two localist LegCo winners uh, chose to take the oath of office in a way that was both contrary to what was required and offensive to China, frank frankly. Uh, I don't know what they thought they were doing. Uh, I'm not sure they knew what their goals were and what they wanted to achieve. Maybe they all they wanted to do was to provoke Beijing, and if that was their goal, they succeeded. Um, it got a strong reaction, um, and um, they were removed from office. Uh, the unfortunate thing was that as soon as this problem occurred, the Hong Kong government went to court <coughs> to disqualify them from office. And the Hong Kong government was confident that it would win. But Beijing, in the... Um, in through, the, uh, through a decision of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress preempted the Hong Kong courts um, and essentially sort of told the courts what to decide. Uh, that suggests uh, uh, lack of confidence in the rule of law. Um, and um, so it um, sort of probably made the situation uh, worse than it needed to. Um, just this week, the Hong Kong government sought uh, a judicial review from the Hong Kong courts to try and exclude uh, uh, four more Democratic members of LegCo, uh, including the famous <laughs> long hair, Mr. Leung. So looking back uh, on the last um, three plus years, we have a situation that um, could have worked out pretty well. 
not to anybody's satisfaction, but frankly, in politics, good enough is often about all you can get. Uh, and you've got to be satisfied, you've got to work with it. Um, but, you know, we ended up with a lose-lose situation. It's a double tragedy because as long as the political system is in stalemate and um, in contestation, Hong Kong cannot move forward on some important policy issues having to do with economic competitiveness, social welfare, uh, and so on. Um, the radical Democrats have just enough ways to gum up the system. Let me talk just a little bit about the U.S. role um, during this whole episode. Um, Washington was actually in an awkward position during the debate over electoral reform. You know, on the one hand, we support democratization everywhere. On the other hand, you know, we acknowledge and accept that Hong Kong is a special administrative region of China and that the basic law is the territory's constitutional document. Complicating matters, um, PRC propagandists early on and continuing through the whole process made quite false allegations that the United States was the black hand uh, behind efforts in Hong Kong to radicalize uh, the struggle over electoral reform. Um, evidence was manufactured to prove this. Um, my own strong impression is that uh, we understood the dangers of becoming the issue here and uh, we thought that uh, um, and believed sincerely that the turmoil was the result of local issues. And uh, President Obama went so far as um, to reassure Xi Jinping that we did not create this trouble. Uh, he did that in November of 2014. Um, the rhetorically, we positioned ourselves in a subtle way to show, to say that what we wanted was a competitive election. I think that people in Hong Kong understood that. Um, um, even if we'd wanted to play a more active role, it's kind of hard to see how we would have done it because the Democratic camp was so divided and uh, various parts of that camp wanted to say that the United States was on its side. Um, so we were um, probably right to stay in the background. Now, uh, I think we're in a different situation and where um, there is some question about whether the uh, freedoms and guarantees uh, put forward in the basic law are going to be protected and so perhaps the time has come to raise the salience of the Hong Kong issue in our diplomacy with Beijing. I think I'll stop there because I want to take plenty of time to questions. I could go on, but I won't. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for your attention. For, for you know, one of the, when the NPC you know, exercised jurisdiction, it, it, it didn't wait for the appeals mm -hmm. process mm -hmm. to run. And I was, you know, troubled by that. Um, there are circumstances in which the Supreme Court of the United States has original jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And the NPC functions as, in effect, the court of final appeal yeah. of mm -hmm. Hong Kong mm -hmm. under, mm -hmm. under the law. Right. Is there some analogy there that, that this, 
In other words, it was something where they believed they had original jurisdiction, so they interfered in the judicial process. And then the Court of Final Appeal, I think finally, it was backwards. It then yes. agreed with the National People's Congress right. decision. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm, I'm a lousy lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there has been a lot of uh, um, sort of documentation out there about why this was proper. Um, I think my comment on all of this would be whatever the legal justification, uh, the political consequences of appearing to preempt uh, a legal process that was already underway um, you know, didn't send a good signal at all. That, uh, you know, if the Hong Kong uh, judiciary had come to the wrong decision, then uh, you know, that's a good time to intervene, and, and that has happened before. Um, but um, you know, I think it, it raised doubts when um, they could have gotten the same results. Whether there was a panic or what, I don't know. How many NPC decisions have we had since 1997? About 10. Oh, that many? Yeah. So, mo most of them having to do with electoral reform, with the election system. Where core, I thought it was more like four or five. Well, there's there's some that have to do with legal matters. So the one, the first one was about the right of abode. Right, that I remember. Um, and then, as you approached each election, um, there would be a decision uh, just uh, stating what the rules of the game for that election would be. So it was, uh, you know, the the one in 20, 2007 that talked about the um, 2012 arrangements that also promised that for 2017 it could be done by universal suffrage. Then there was one um, August 31st, 2014 that um, ratified and gave somewhat more detail on this approach. It may be more like eight, but it's... Um, Beijing has decided that it needs to um, um, sort of preempt discussion to some extent. During the democracy, uh, you know, both the umbrella movement, democracy demonstrations, the PRC is given little credit for living up to the basic law. Mm -hmm. is, do you think is that fair? A bum, I, I think it's a bum rap, and yeah. you know, I, I, I fault them on some of their tactics, but I fault the, the pan-democrats on their strategy and some of their tactics. I mean, first of all, let's recognize that Beijing bought the British argument in 1984 um, that it was a good thing to have uh, the rule of law and civil and political rights. It may have uh, gotten a case of buyer's remorse about how Hong Kong people then exploited these freedoms um, and turned them against it. Um, but for for this whole period up until last this past year, um, it has basically stuck to those commitments. Moreover, it accepted, um, I believe, 
a, an approach that would have reformed the electoral system of the, for the chief executive in a significant way. And that then would have opened up the possibility of moving towards elimination of functional constituencies. So all of LegCo would have been elected popularly. The book has, I think, a very accurate description of the events during that period, including uh -huh. the, 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 the pepper spraying and yeah. the tear gratitude. I mean, it's a very... I contrast it with what I read in the U.S. media during uh -huh. that period. Uh -huh. Why? What? In other words, if you... I, I would love somebody to kind of take the book and put it next to, you know, the, the coverage of... Uh, the Chinese always complain about Western media coverage. In the case of the Hong Kong demonstrations, the coverage was incredibly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Why? Most of the coverage, um, and this is true of the American press, but also worldwide press, was concentrated in the early, the first couple of weeks, right. when uh, you had the most vivid um, conflict going on between the authorities who were surprised by the form that the protests took. You know, that was when the tear grass was uh, used uh, and so on. Um, once things settled down and once uh, the violence subsided, um, you know, that's not good video anymore. Um, the, I mean, one of the um, occupation sites, Mongkok, I'll, I'll say, right. is more complicated than the others, and you have triads and so on. So that w that was more violent. But um, but the vi in other words, if you read the Western media, the violence in Hong Kong was precipitated by the Hong Kong government and with PRC kind of connivance or acquiescence, mm -hmm. whereas in fact it was triads yeah. and storekeepers who didn't want people blocking right. entrance to their... That's right. But if you read the way, it, it, there was no acceptance of that as mm -hmm. an actual <coughs> case. Um, I hate to bash the bit. We have Richard here, we have some other folks here from the media, but it, it was one where really I just felt I was reading fiction because I would be talking to people in Hong Kong regularly, and they would say, no, it was kind of what, like what the book says. Um, there is a value f of being 11 time zones away. <laughs> <laughs> um, the issue of er erosion of civil and political rights, so, you know, the, the bookseller Mm -hmm. was, I think, certainly the worst case since 1997 yeah, in right. terms of a, right. a clear violation. Mm -hmm. um, the NPC decisions, I think, are much greater. Mm -hmm. That you can argue that there is some original jurisdiction and that they're entitled to interpret uh, the basic law. Where else should we be looking? You know, there's the issue of, of self-censorship mm -hmm. in the Hong Kong press. You know, Hong Kong, when you and I live there, is the most freewheeling press in the, in the world. Yeah. Um, and now there's concern about self-censorship. Well, this is, I, I think this is a complicated issue as well, because um, in, 
around the world, um, print media is under commercial pre uh, commercial pressures, and owners uh, um, do have influence over um, what is written, and um, you know. When Jack Ma buys the South China Morning Post, is that uh, because he sees it as a commercial opportunity, or is he doing his loyal patriotic duty to improve coverage of China? That's you know, what he said he um, it was for. Um, Have we seen deterioration since he bought it? I think they've pulled some punches uh, in terms of their coverage of what's going on in, in terms Hong of Kong. China, yeah, and, and Hong Kong, and Hong Kong. Um, I, I do feel that, you know, if you are of a certain political point of view and want to get coverage that is sympathetic with that point of view, there are still outlets that do it. You know, if you don't like what Apple Daily is doing, you, uh, with what SCMP is doing, you can go to Apple Daily. The other thing that is <coughs> important here, it's important in our own country as well, is that um, we shouldn't just be looking at print media. Uh, we should be looking at electronic media as well. And uh, it, in Hong Kong, there's something called the Hong Kong Free Press. It's totally digital, but uh, it's very lively, and it gives good coverage from a sort of uh, skeptical point of view. Um, you can get the app for HKFP on your phone and look at what they have to say every day. Um, and um, so the, the company, uh, you know, we need to look at the totality of the media that's available to people there um, and, you know, in the way we evaluate press freedom. Um, you know, there is nibbling, that's for sure, um, and uh, some um, some outlets um, do self-censor. Um, I don't recommend the media st structure we have here <laughs> in the United States in terms of getting good information on which to base political judgments. How does the political situation now play out as a result of the defeat of the electoral reform it, what happened is there was progress in that there would be universal suffrage, but the nomination process was um, not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So as a result of not accepting the compromise, it then fell back to the yes. old system where just 1,200 people select the, the chief executive. So the failure to accept it, then it, you, you got a much worse situation. Mm -hmm. So what happens over the next... Uh, 10 years. Uh, how does this, do we continue to have these 1,200 people who are selected in unusual ways um, continue to select the chief executive or do we see some progress? Well, you, you could have um, uh, a continuation of the muddled um, status quo uh, with which nobody is happy. Um, you could have as a worse scenario, uh, Beijing taking steps um, at central government initiative to trim back on um, 
you know, what was granted to Hong Kong in the Basic Law. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but at least hypothetically, there's a there's an optimistic um, scenario as well, and that is that um, Beijing concludes after the 19th Party Congress, after the 12th National People's Congress, and when uh, you have a new set of uh, people running Hong Kong policy, um, that um, they should try again. And that uh, the instability that you see in Hong Kong today is going to continue until you address the issue of electoral reform. Um, that um, over time, um, moving, uh, moving forward on electoral reform will actually bring about stability. So you revive the proposal of April 2015 Maybe you tweak it a little bit so that you can say it's different. Um, you cultivate people in the moderate wing of the democratic camp uh, to get their support, build them up instead of marginalizing them, uh, and uh, try and pass it again. And so that for the election of the chief executive in uh, 2020 uh, or 2022, it would be done on a universal suffrage basis. There would be a nominating committee, but it would be on the same rules that were put forward in the government's proposal. And perhaps chastened, uh, at least some some people in the Democratic camp would would realize, uh, we blew it last time, let's not blow, blow it this time. When I moved to Hong Kong in my second incarnation, my first incarnation was a student, my second incarnation was for the late, great Lehman Brothers. <laughs> the, um, we arranged a financing of the Cross Harbor Tunnel, the second Cross Harbor Tunnel, where the financing went through, this was in 1984-85, when the financing went past 1997, mm -hmm. because the concern at that point in time all financing was completed in 97. So we worked with the Hong Kong government, the Bank of China, China National Trust and Investment Corporation, Citibank and others to arrange a financing mm -hmm. that went beyond that. And that was, was the first one ever done and it was very important because it basically the financial community mm -hmm. said, we're confident that post 97, <coughs> this is still gonna work. We're gonna mm -hmm. be able, you know, the, the system is still gonna function. We're now, 30 years? Mm -hmm. Are people starting to plan? What are people thinking of 2047? And because then the one country, two systems ends. That's right. So what's the thinking? Well, I mean, we have the luxury of, of knowing that we're probably not going to live to 2047. You don't see. know. <laughs> All this good biotech stuff? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, people of our... will we want to live? <laughs> people of our generation in Hong Kong, they're probably not going to live to see it. They will have seen the run-up to it. But the kids, uh, the young people who did the umbrella movement, uh, you know, that's in their lifetime. Uh, they will only be in middle age when that happens. So they have a very different mentality about 2047. 
So this is starting to be discussed. Um, the in not too long, the issue that um, of land leases, which is what led the British to uh, push the Chinese to make some decisions on Hong Kong, that's going to come to the fore again. Uh, I think that um, probably sooner than that, there will be um, projects similar to the one that you were involved in, where um, uh, the the um, the project timeline is so long. Right that you have to uh, get everything laid out in advance. You have to get Chinese agreement that the arrangements that um, uh, are agreed upon before 2047 will be abided by after right. 2047. Um, there is an option, I suppose, um, of just extend extending it. And that may, in the end, be the sensible thing to do. It depends very much on the political situation and whether um, you can uh, stabilize things uh, um, within the political system, but also in terms of policy making. Um, and you know, if if extending it is what will preserve stability and keep Hong Kong people confident, then then maybe they can do it. But we won't live to see. We probably won't live to see the the, the two thousand and forty seven. But we will live to see the financial markets yes. begin yes. to anticipate right. what is going to happen. Uh -huh. So we we will live to financial markets look way ahead. Mm -hmm. they, they they don't look at today. They look and then it will become predictive. Mm -hmm. And quite if there is not something done to kind of talk about what happens in July second. 2047, the financial markets become concerned, and that, that happens many, many years in advance. Well, and you may remember that in, uh, for example, October 1983, uh, there was a financial panic in Hong yep. Kong because people lost confidence in the um, in uh, arrangements going forward. Um, and so British government had to move very quickly to calm the yep. fears. What was so interesting about that um, transaction is we brought we had we brought in uh, what was then Zhongguo Guojixin Totsugongso Citic, and uh, Rumi Ren was the then uh -huh. chairman of Citic, and we knew he had the he could reach the highest levels of the Chinese government, mm -hmm. so we brought them in on the equity side, and he reached the highest levels of the Chinese government, got approval to invest, and then Bank of China was one of the co-leads on the debt side along mm. with Hong Kong mm. Shanghai Bank and, uh, and Citibank. Mm. So we, we basically was this, uh, the largest investor was a Japanese company. So we, mm -hmm. we ran this multinational consortium huh. which basically stated, told the financial markets were confident in, in post-97. <coughs> in, in post what, um, what's it all mean for Taiwan? Um, this is interesting. Um, Within Taiwan, um, Hong Kong is a um, political cudgel that can be used uh, for um, green politicians to attack blue politicians. And uh, their slogan is, uh, uh, this is at least when President Ma was in office, their slogan was, today's Hong Kong is tomorrow's Taiwan. That, 
you know, Mind Joe is taking us down Hong Kong's road, and uh, um, we are going to see uh, similar consequences. Um, <coughs> interestingly, um, what I found in, in sort of talking to Taiwan's Hong Kong experts, <coughs> people in the public don't see implications. Um, particularly if they don't have family in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. If you have family in Hong Kong, there are <coughs> implications. But um, they have been sort of educated to the idea that the two cases are different. That even though Beijing says one country, two systems for both, they believe that Hong Kong was a colony, it never had sovereignty, uh, the Republic of China uh, is an independent sovereign state, and uh, so the one country, two systems thing doesn't apply to us. And you know, when, when uh, the Occupy movement uh, first got going and um, there was a lot of news coverage, uh, people paid attention, but pretty quickly um, uh, the tear gas subsided and um, the Taiwan people turned to some other issue. I think it was food safety. Um, uh, and well, probably this, for, for at least some people, this just confirms what they believed anyway about the Chinese government. Um, but I, um, the Chinese could have walked into Hong Kong any day and taken it over. They could not do the same. In October Hong 1949, Kong. they could have walked over. They got to the border and they stopped. Right. And during the Cultural Revolution, they yeah. could. Mm -hmm. They chose not to. Um, let me open the floor to questions. Frank, speak like loudly to, so we can pick it up on it. I'd like to uh, zoom out a bit and bring in two factors that are going to affect everything that was talked about but you have not touched on. Sure. And the two factors are uh, globalization mm -hmm. and the uh, increasing integration of the Pearl River Delta, mm -hmm. um, both in terms of uh, bridges and logistics mm -hmm. and in terms of shared economics, mm -hmm. um, people from uh, Hong Kong going into the Pearl River Delta as uh, managers or investors, mm -hmm. um, and uh, people from the mainland coming as students to the universities, etc. So that Hong Kong in the future is going to be affected by these two um, major secular trends and that in turn will have an effect on what you've been talking about. What do you think that will be? Um, well, Hong Kong historically has been, um, you know, you might say the poster child of globalization because it was a free market and uh, it early on um, uh, became um, uh, the sort of the key link in global supply chains, or what we now call global supply chains. Um, and it it was Hong Kong companies that um, um, brought um, uh, southern China into uh, the world of globalization. Um, I think that this has had a couple of consequences um, for 
uh, first of all, it means that Taiwan, that Hong Kong uh, has to be very nimble in terms of identifying its um, comparative advantage going forward and how it's going to be competitive um, and can it create the right policy environment. Um, actually, it's my <coughs> understanding that the low-wage manufacturing that used that has taken place in the Pearl River Delta and which benefited Hong Kong companies that were managing the whole process, um, that's um, going away. Um, and that is, um, China moves up the supply chain and uh, has labor rights um, laws and environmental laws. Um, it's not the same situation that we had in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, um, the um, the other thing affecting uh, Hong Kong people and Hong Kong's preserving competitiveness is uh, the rapid change in technology, and so you need to make sure that your education system is producing the kind of talent that you need for whatever um, uh, sectors are going to be the um, engines of growth. Um, you're absolutely right on the spatial integration of all of this, and um, people uh, uh, looking forward see the potential for the emergence of a, um, uh, a sort of mega city that incorporates Hong Kong, Macau, um, Guangzhou, and the whole s uh, surrounding area and that the connectivity, both physical and electronic, uh, is going to be very important in pulling this together. Now, there are policy challenges um, you know, within Hong Kong uh, to being part of this, um, uh, and some of that is political, that um, uh, you know, if there's an infrastructure project, uh, the people <laughs> whose neighborhood it affects uh, have ways of resisting it. Um, you know, if there's a feeling that uh, you know this is going to allow um, the mainland police to intrude uh, in ways that it hadn't intruded before, that becomes a political issue. Um, the um, sort of real estate. Um, uh, market uh, has a way of, uh, of reducing uh, entrepreneurship and um, uh, growing inequality. So um, because Hong Kong in a way is the most advanced of these because it's in political turmoil, it's, uh, it, it's not always easy for it to take advantage of all of this, but you know, there are people who see the opportunities. Richard. Uh, thank you, Steve. You, you identified me as the media representative, so I wanted <laughs> to, uh, to uh, fulfill that role. Okay. Um, uh, uh, but I do have a question that doesn't... That's how I first met you, right, 174 yeah. years ago. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I do plan to be around in, in 2014. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't argue with you at all about whether the press got it right or wrong, uh, because I know that the press gets it wrong a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would be the last to, to dispute that. I think we've just seen some very major examples in this country about how the press didn't, didn't get it 
right, even though they, you know there was certainly no absence of journalists covering the story, but somehow mm -hmm. the story eluded them. But I do, but I do feel that the impression that I'm mostly reading the New York Times anyway. The impression that I had of what happened in Hong Kong from this distance of 8,000 or 9,000 miles is more or less along the lines of what we just heard from from Richard Bush. So I'm not really that sure what you mean by uh, when you describe it getting it that dramatically wrong. There were these demonstrations that was called Occupy Central and the Umbrella Movement, and it was led and instigated by people who were unhappy rules governing the election of the chief executive. I mean, that's basically... Well, the portrayal of the Hong Kong police, the portrayal of what created the situation where pepper spray and tear gas had to be used, the kind of the, the, the coverage of this mythology that the Chinese were going to move, were going to kind of bring troops in to put down this insurrection. I mean, it, it was, it, Richard, it was, it was, it was fiction. Yeah. Okay. It well, was I fiction. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the press gets, um, uh, you know, the herd of independent minds uh, gets a certain uh, narrative uh, in its head, and, and, and often the press fix their, you know, five basic narratives. And the, child, the, the difference between the really good journalists and the uh, sort of ordinary journalists is the really good journalists can sometimes see that the narrative that everybody else is following is not exactly, is not exactly yeah. right. But I, I did have a question. I, I didn't mm -hmm. want to just argue with you about the press. I, I, the, the young people, uh, the generation that really will live to 2047 and beyond, is their main concern economic, which is what I've heard a lot about, you know, the price of, you know, the uh, difficulty of getting jobs, the high cost of uh, apartments, uh, the difficulty of finding a place to live. Is that what's motivating them primarily, or, or are they motivated talked about the difference between Taiwan and Hong Kong. I, get the, I certainly have the strong impression that on Taiwan, there's a really strong commitment to liberal democracy. Uh, and the worry about China is very much related to that. Uh, China not being exactly a beacon of liberal democracy these days. Is, there, is that an important concern in Hong Kong as well, or is it mostly in economic? Um, I think it is. I think it, you know, the, the mix of factors, um, you know, how much this is uh, purely political and how much it's economic varies from individual to individual and group to group. Um, but um, I, <coughs> the economic inequality, um, I think, was certainly a, an exacerbating factor in all of this. And it, uh, it, what, it, it often gives fuel to middle-class protest. I mean, if you think about it, um, uh, Hong Kong's a situation where you have um, a fairly high concentration of both economic and political power. And through the functional constituencies, uh, it's often the same people or the same groups. Uh, and so in the minds of young people who are facing uh, intense competition for school places, for jobs, for housing, um, they come to the conclusion that the economic system's rigged against us, 
The political system is rigged against us. The only way that we're going to have a shot at a chance is to change the political system. So democratization becomes, in their minds, a means to the end of reducing economic quality, uh, inequality and the lack of opportunity. You know, there's a line in um, um, the Communist Manifesto where uh, Marx and Engels say that the capitalist state is no more, no less than the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. And I once told a PRC friend of mine, isn't it interesting that the purest expression of this idea is found in a part of China, communist China? That's what you were talking about, Beijing. Yeah. He, he said, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we only have, uh, let's see, about four minutes left. So let's take all of our, we'll take our four questions. Okay. And then... Take me four minutes to ask the question. Come on, Herb. You gotta <laughs> keep it short and sharp. First, uh, I agree with with uh, with both of you very much. I think Richard's description uh, is very good. Uh, uh, my daughter lives in Central for 23 years. She gets the New York Times uh, on her screen before my copy lands outside my apartment door. And she would call me up and say, they're nuts, that's not what's going on here. Then I would go and get my copy outside. And we'd wonder why they were, why they were, they were cuckoo. Uh, I also, uh, 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 so I agree with, with, with Richard's uh, description. And I agree with the problem that you've raised, uh, which was that the Honest, hardworking, sincere American reporters have never seen a demonstration they didn't sympathize with because that's what they used to do when they were students. And so yes. it's, it's kind of weird. That's what I used boring. to do when I was a student, too. Yeah. So, uh, but, but my question is, when, when the negotiations were going on, and one, one talked to Richard Evans and all these guys who were doing the negotiations, I could understand why they had uh, agreed and obtained certain things because the heavy money in Hong Kong and others wanted certain surety. I never understood why they went for the popular election of the governor. There would never been a British governor elected. There were no provincial governors elected in China. What the hell was the point of this? And they said, well, Beijing basically figured, oh, these Cantonese are such a pain in the neck. Let them have one of their own people administer this. Nobody from the north wants to go down. You don't understand what they're saying and the food is terrible. So let them have one of their own people do this. But it, what, that was, to me, that was an inexplicable thing. Now, the question is, 2047, what are the people in Hong Kong aiming for? If they behave themselves, quote unquote, in Beijing's eyes, they can have something very special. Those of us who've toured around China, you know, uh, Shanghai's relationship with Beijing and Tianjin's relationship with Beijing and Xi'an and all very, Chengdu is very, very different depending on how they administer things, how acceptable it is to the center. Does the opinion in Hong Kong say, how do we handle ourselves in such a way to maximize our situation, maximize our freedoms in a manner that's acceptable to Beijing? Or are we going to play these, these absurd games about what would make us happy without regard to what these guys a thousand miles away. Okay, you weren't think. kidding about the four minutes. Okay, okay. Uh, Bill. Um, so yeah, the short answer is 
They're, they're not thinking strategically. Quick question, Richard, given your expertise on Taiwan, I have to ask, what's your take on Trump's phone call with Saeed? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah? Yes. Um, We're real short, like Bill's. Um, so my question is, um, as Mr. Bush mentioned, that one of the fallouts of the unrelated movement is that um, the argument for democracy has somehow been transformed into an argument for independence, mm -hmm. which has honored, as, I, as I see it, um, has triggered a shift in the sentiments of many mainland Chinese intellectuals. Hmm. A shift moving away from sympathy or sense of camaraderie mm -hmm. towards suspicion and confusion. Mm -hmm. And I think this shift strikes at the heart of a dilemma in the Chinese mind, which is a dilemma between, on the one hand, an awakening aspiration for liberal democracy, but on the other hand, a perpetual preoccupation with nationalism. Mm -hmm. yeah. interest. Okay. What, I agree. Paul? Oh, thank you. Um, Real short. Yep. Uh, given what's resulted now, do you think there's any possibility of either the Hong Kong government or the Beijing government at great reach of resolving some of the immediate uh, social, economic, educational challenges? Or do they have any political will to do so? Um, I'll take that one first. The, um, I mean, there is an understanding of the, the um, consequences of the housing shortage. Um, and the impact that this has on the mentality of middle-class kids, uh, and there are trying, they're trying to do it. Um, there are things that are more radical reforms that could be done um, that have been laid out that are not being done. I, I hope that they do. Um, there is a consciousness of the aging population and the burden that this is going to place on government and society. Um, not total clarity on how to deal with it. On the Trump side uh, phone call, um, my understanding of this is, is that although it was apparently President Tsai who physically placed the call, um, the idea came from people in Mr. Trump's camp. Um, uh, the sort of assumption uh, in their thinking is that um, um, they understand how to deal with China, that, uh, you know, if you're firm and tough with China, if you just do what you're going to do, China will back down, and that wimpy people like Richard Bush just are too weak and uh, just don't understand how to deal with, <laughs> with them. Um, I, um, my, my guess is that um, if this is the only thing that um, President-elect Trump does that is sort of provocative towards China, um, that um, he'll get a pass from Beijing. You know, he knows the term mulligan in golf and uh, you know, he's liable to get a mulligan. Uh, what I worry about is that uh, Beijing will find ways to punish Taiwan. Um, you know, it's, there are already things that it's doing. It has a long list. It could go further down that list. And that would be too bad. Um, I suspect that that wasn't considered before this was undertaken. Was there, a, those were all the questions? I mean, that was, I mean, you answered yeah, A couple of statements, yeah. But I agree with that. I uh, I agree with you. I mean, I can. Um, um, and 
I, um, you know, this is um, one of the things that um, young people in Hong Kong need to consider. You know, as Chairman Mao said, who are our enemies? Who are our friends? Um, if you don't just, if you're not clear on that, um, you've got a problem. The book is available outside. Richard, mm -hmm. thank you so okay. much for what was a very interesting book. Thank you. Thank you.